Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 191st episode of the Nauticast, titled Breaking Borders, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Brand 3, and John 5, in which the Stark boys finally cross paths and go home together. Ah, well, at least John's going home, or that's what he tells himself to get over being shot by his girlfriend. And to think this might be a best-case scenario for John aban- abandoning the wildlings. <laughs> this could have gone much, much worse. That's the that's the really sad part of these chapters. And yes, chapters plural. We're combining these two chapters, Brand 3 and John 5, for this episode. Since they happen around the same place and around the same time, I thought it may- only made sense to, to do the two of them together. So our spoiler warning, as we always say, prepare to be spoiled for all published books, the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from one of our patrons, David, who asks, If Rob didn't have to marry Jane, or Afray, who would have been the best match for him, slash who would have been the most fun to see him with? Uh, so what do you think of that, Manu? Who, who, who should Rob have married if, if fate didn't demand otherwise? So in terms of that first half of who is the best match for him, I think one that even the story kind of tells us would be Marjorie Tyrell. I think Catelyn thinks about it in one of her Clash of Kings or perhaps Storm of Swords chapters, I don't recall right now. Um, but that's obvious. And obviously, um, the Tyrells joining the Stark cause once the War of Five Kings underway would be just a huge power swing in the other direction. So I think that would obviously be the most advantageous to Roger, Rob's military campaign. Um, one perhaps later in the game that would be a great match for him might have been Alice Karstark, just in case that could have maybe blunted what he had to do with her father um, and maybe keep some men loyal to him that maybe wouldn't deplete his numbers as bad as they did. Um, but I think who would be the most fun? Uh, Daenerys, uh, easily. If just somehow the king in the north heard about um, this girl who just gave birth to three dragons, obviously she wouldn't have much with her at this moment. Um, but I just feel like it would be fun just because like they're two, two characters we generally root for. Um, and then there could also be a parallel where it's like, oh, Rob and Danny, you know, they're trying to get together, but it's really John and Danny who are supposed to get together in the end. And, I like this triangle. Um, John obviously already has some hangups with Rob or at least the position Rob had with him in terms of the secession line at Winterfell and all that. Um, so you could do some meaty stuff with it, but I think mostly from the, they're both hot young and they, they fucking go out and win. So it's just kind of like a dream team scenario to have Rob and Danny team up. They check all the boxes. I like this potential drama. But yeah, Marjorie, as you say, George kind of hangs a lampshade on that. Like that would have been the perfect choice. Although I always wonder like what the goal of that would be since Rob never mentions wanting the Iron Throne. I assume if he made an alliance with the Tyrells, that would have been part of the deal. Like Mace would insist like, yeah, you're going to be the king of everything. I'm not, <laughs> I don't I don't care about the North. We've seen that before with the Retours. They're not into the North. So presumably that would be part of the deal. Alice Karstark is a good call. That makes the most sense in terms of keeping the Northern Coalition together specifically. You know, it doesn't expand Rob's camp, but it does keep it together. I think for me, in terms of best match and also most fun for me, it's the same answer, and that would have been Asha. Like, there's obviously no way that's that's going to work out in terms of the bad blood <laughs> between the Ironborn and the North, but if they, you know, if you see, like, the, the kind of the platform Asha ends up running at, at the King's Moot, or what she calls her Queen's Moot in A Feast for Crows, obviously that can't work in terms of supporting Rob, because Rob by that point is a, a moldering head on a pike. But if she had, you know, been pushing for that kind of policy earlier, 
that would have been an interesting alliance because I think the Starks and the, the Ironborn, although they do have that bad blood, it makes sense for them to make an alliance given that they're the two kind of regions of Westeros most interested in breaking off from the Iron Throne and they could kind of, you know, the North has a strong army on land, the Ironborn obviously have a strong navy, they could team up, they could... You know, Theon even proposes this. I think he does a very poor job of it, but he proposes <laughs> it to his dad in Clash of Kings. Like, while Rob is keeping the Lannisters busy, we could take Lannisport and put Casterly Rock under siege, and that would be pretty much it for the Lannisters. We could do this. So, sealing that with a marriage pact between Rob and Asha, but also because, as you say, hot and fun characters. Mm-hmm. That's that's for me a perfect match. I've I have a I have a mild crush on Asha Greyjoy. She's very much my type. So. I think, you know, who knows if she would have fun with that, but because she's, you know, she's, she's older and more experienced than Rob or Danny or Alice Karstark or Marjorie Asha. Asha knows what she likes. So I don't know if she'd be super into that, but you know, Rob's, Rob's handsome enough. Maybe, maybe she could get away with it, but I think they, they'd be a dream team if they got to work together. So thank you so much to David for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F where our sworn sword and higher tier patrons get to ask us questions as well as access other benefits like early access to our regular episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and more. But we are here today to talk about two, not one but two chapters, A Storm of Swords, Brand 3, and John 5, so let's get into the synopsis for both of them. The tower stood upon an island, its twin reflected on the still blue waters. When the wind blew, ripples moved across the surface of the lake, chasing one another like boys at play. Oak trees grew thick along the lake shore, a dense stand of them with a litter of fallen acorns on the grounds beneath. Beyond them was the village, or what remained of it. (laughs) I gotta love all that beautiful Tolkien-style nature imagery, followed up by the brutal gut punch of the village or what remained of it. That is George R. R. Martin in a nutshell. This is the first village Team Bran has seen since leaving the hills where they spent his last chapter. Mira uses all her solid snake stealth skills to investigate, but the only living things she finds are some deer, who Summer immediately starts to chase. Oh, thanks, Mira. How much did Summer pay you for that one? Bran wants to warg into Summer and join the hunt, but Mira's signaling them, so he has to stay in his own body, like a chump. Bran is glad to be on flat ground again, all the way from here to the wall, but Mira isn't happy about being so exposed. There's no place to hide, she says. Hide from who, though? Who lives here? Bran thinks back to his lessons from Maester Lewin, R.I.P. This land is called the Gift, and it belongs to the Night's Watch. Brandon the Builder gave all the land south of the Wall to the Black Brothers, to a distance of 25 leagues, for their... for their sustenance and support. He was proud that he still remembered that part. Some maesters say it was some other Brandon, not the Builder, but it's still Brandon's Gift. Thousands of years later, good Queen Alysanne visited the Wall on her dragon Silverwing, and she thought the Night's Watch was so brave that she had the old king double the size of their lands, to 50 leagues, So that was the new gift. He waved a hand. Here, all this. All this isn't looking too hot these days. The houses are collapsing, and all that's left of the inn is two walls and a chimney, with an apple tree growing up through the floor. The smell of apples is everywhere, but all of them are too full of worms to eat. I guess only Summer's eating well tonight. It's a beautiful place, but also sad because it's so empty. Hodor picks up on the bittersweet feeling as much as Bran. Jojen wonders why anyone would abandon such a lovely area. Bran says it was because of wildling raiders, who have only gotten bolder as the Night's Watch has decayed. Little Brad is more right than he knows, as is Jojen when he says there's a storm coming. Bran says they should hole up in the Holdfast, since the inn is roofless. Mira points out they have no boat to cross the water, but Bran once again proves himself the Loremaster, telling the reeds about a hidden causeway he remembers from Old Nan's stories. 
Old Nan keeps saving the day, even in death. Assuming she's dead, which I kinda hope she is, the alternative at the Dreadfort being what it is, just ask Theon. Mira once again takes the lead, using her spear to probe her way across the causeway. It's not exactly easygoing, as the path keeps zigzagging. <laughs> if only Rickon had come with them, he'd have learned how to zigzag. Hodor almost loses his footing twice, scaring Bran half to death, but finally they all make it across. Mira shoves open the door, and Hodor smacks Bran's head on the way in. Hodor's trying his best. It's hard enough being that tall without adding an extra head on top. Bran sees steps winding up and down all around the inner wall of the tower. They're guarded by grates, and even Hodor can't force them open. But Bran, always looking up, notices a murder hole right above them, and manages to pull down the grate, though he gives himself another bump on the noggin in the process. Ooh, right in the third eye. That's gotta hurt. Team Bran climbs in through the murder hole, though Hodor has to build himself a ladder of boulders first. They all explore the tower, which has bigger windows the higher they climb. Finally, they reach the roof, where Mira spins around delighting in the height and the view, despite her brother reminding her that she's been up higher trees in the neck. Damn, what a buzzkill Jojen is. It's almost like having constant visions of your own death is kind of a bummer. Bran was hoping to be able to see the wall from up here, but they're still too far away. Speaking of the wall, what's the plan when they finally get there? Jojen mentions there are a bunch of castles along the wall that have been abandoned by the Night's Watch. Maybe they can find a way through in one of them. Bran, once again, thinks about Old Nan's stories and Maester Lewin's lessons. Bran had to memorize the names of every castle, and he got to show them off to Uncle Benjen. Aw, happier times before the, you know, everything that happened to the Starks. Anyway, Uncle Benjen told Bran that the gates of the abandoned castles were all sealed up with stone and ice. Mira says they'll have to open one of them up. But that makes Bran nervous. What if something comes through? Like ice spiders, big as hounds. Bran wants to just go to Castle Black and cross over there, but Jojen says that's no good, because Castle Black is full of the thing they're trying so hard to avoid. Other people. Which, true, although not nearly as many as there used to be there. Bran protests that the Watchmen take vows to not interfere in the realm's politics, but Jojen points out that it would only take one Oathbreaker to bring their hero adventure quest to a bitter end. And even the loyal men might decide it's too dangerous to let Bran through the wall. More than anything, though, Bran wants to see his family again. Benjamin must be at Castle Black. He's been found by now, right? Fact check. False. And also John's there. Fact check. False. Though he will be soon, thanks to Bran. Jojen interrupts Bran's nostalgia by pointing out a rider in the distance. The Fellowship of the Bran decides to hide from sight. Bran is worried about Summer, but Mira says the wolf would be fine. It's only one guy, right? Well, yeah. So far. As they retreat back inside the tower, the storm finally breaks overhead. Mira sees the rider making a fire, which gets Bran jealous. Why can't they have a fire? Because it'll be seen, Jojen says. It might be only one man out there, but as at Castle Black, one man could be all it takes. As usual, Jojen's word is law, and they all squat to chow down on cold duck. Bran tells a story about one of his many, many namesakes, Brandon the shipwright this time, as night falls. Lightning strikes, followed by rolling thunder, both of which freak Hodor out. He starts doing what he does best, yelling Hodor really loudly. Bran manages to get him to calm down and hand his sword over to Mira. The relief doesn't last long, though, because the next time lightning flashes, Jojen catches a glimpse of other men in the village. Too many to count. Oh, and they're armed. Even he sounds scared now. He's worried the men might come out to the tower for shelter, and, as if on cue, Hodor starts Hodoring again. Mira tries to stop him, but he flings her aside. What will our pint-sized hero do now? 
Be quiet, Bran said in a shrill, scared voice, reaching up uselessly for Hodor's leg as he crashed past. Reaching. Reaching. Hodor staggered and closed his mouth. He shook his head slowly from side to side, sank back to the floor, and sat cross-legged. When the thunder boomed, he scarcely seemed to hear it. The four of them sat in the dark tower, scarce daring to breathe. Bran, what did you do? Mira whispered. Nothing. Bran shook his head. I don't know. But he did. I reached for him, the way I reach for Summer. He had been Hodor for half a heartbeat. It scared him. Oof, that's chilling stuff. But Bran will have plenty of time to practice abomination in Blood Raven's cave. For now, they've still got those men in the village to deal with. Jojen couldn't tell if they were Northmen or Watchmen or Wildlings. Finally, Bran realizes that regardless of who the men are, they can't come out to the tower unless they know about the causeway. Mira is relieved, but Jojen, ever the buzzkill, points out that the causeway will be visible by morning. On that cheery note, Bran leaves them all behind, slipping into Summer's skin as the wolf takes refuge from the rain. He hears men talking, and even with all the natural smells filling up his magical wolf nose, he can smell the fear. Okay, everyone, let's rewind the clock, and jump over to John. The wildlings are making their way through autumn's garbage, fallen leaves and pine needles, made squishy by the rain. They see an abandoned tower. No, not the one Bran's in. Not yet. Egret wonders who lived there. Must have been a king to raise stones so high. But John says it was just some random dudes who left or died. He follows up on Bran's exposition, thinking about how nature has taken back the gift as the Night's Watch has fallen apart. Maester Lewin would be proud, you know, if he weren't dead. Egret says that whoever lived in that castle were fools to leave. But John fires up his well-actually machine to tell her that's not even a castle, merely a tower house where the local lord would light beacons to warn his people about raiders. You know, wildling raiders, like us. But Winterfell has towers that are way bigger, and stronger, and thicker, and what was I saying? Oh yeah, Egret wonders how it's even possible to build something that huge without giants. Well, according to Old Nan's stories, Brandon the Builder did subcontract the construction of Winterfell to giants, but John doesn't want to, quote, confuse the issue, aka be wrong. John's right, though, when he says they've built wonders south of the Wall. He longs to show her all the wonders of Winterfell specifically, but thinks it'll never be his to show, as an oathbreaker, turncloak, and worst of all, a bastard. Don't worry, John. Winterfell will eventually be yours to show, just a little too late to show it to Egret. Might be we could come back here and live in that tower, she said. Would you want that, Jon Snow? After? After. The word was a spear thrust. After the war. After the conquest. After the wildlings break the wall. His lord father had once talked about raising new lords and settling them in the abandoned holdfasts as a shield against wildlings. The plan would have required the watch to yield back a large part of the gift, but his uncle Benjen believed the lord commander could be won around so long as the new lordlings paid taxes to Castle Black, rather than Winterfell. It is a dream for spring, though, Lord Eddard had said. Even the promise of land will not lure men north with the winter coming on. A dream for spring! He said the thing! Everyone take a shot. John thinks that, had things gone differently, he might right now be holding this tower in Ned's name. But Ned's dead, Benjen's lost, and John insists that this land still belongs to the Watch. Egret points out that it currently looks like it belongs to no one. John says that's because wildling raiders drove them off. Egret has no sympathy for those baden dealers. Why didn't they stay and fight for what was theirs? Maybe they were tired of fighting, 
tired of barring their doors every night and wondering if Rattleshirt or someone like him would break them down to carry off their wives, tired of having their harvests stolen and any valuables they might have. It's easier to move beyond the reach of raiders. But if the wall should fail, all the north will lie within the reach of raiders. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Daughters are taken, not wives. You're the ones who steal. You took the whole world, built the wall to keep the free folk out. Dead way. Sometimes John forgot how wild she was, and then she would remind him. How did that happen? Gods made the earth for all the men to share. Only when the kings come with their crowns and steel swords, they claimed it was all theirs. My trees, they said, you can't eat them apples. My stream, you can't fish here. My wood, you're not to hunt. My earth, my water, my castle, my daughter. Keep your hands away or I'll chop them off. But maybe if you kneel to me, I'll, le I'll let you have a sniff. You call us thieves. But at least a thief has to be grave and clever and quick. And Neil only has to kneel. Hama and the Bag of Bones don't come raiding for fish and apples. They steal swords and axes, spices, silks, and furs. They grab every coin and ring and jeweled cup they can find, casks of wine in summer and casks of beef in winter. And they take women in any season and carry them off beyond the wall. Now what if they do? I'd sooner be stolen by a strong man than be given to some weakling by my father. You say that. But how could you know? What if you were stolen by someone you hated? You'd have to be quick and cunning and brave to steal me. So his sons will be strong and smart as well. Why would I hate such a man as that? Maybe he never washes so he smells as rank as a bear. Then I'd push him in a stream and throw a bucket of water on him. Anyhow, men shouldn't smell sweet like flowers. What's wrong with flowers? Nothing. For a bee. For bed I want one of these. Egret made to grab the front of his breeches. John caught her wrist. What if the man who stole you drank too much? He insisted. What if he was brutal or cruel? He tightened his grip, to make a point. What if he was stronger than you, and liked to beat you bloody? I cut his throat while he slept. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Egret twisted like an eel and wrenched away from him. All Jon knows, he thinks, is that they come from different worlds, no matter how well they get along, most of the time. Egret says that wildling traditions forbid a man from owning both a woman and a knife, and that anyway, you can't own the land any more than the sea or the sky. Mance is going to make that dream real. John, suddenly remembering he's supposed to be a spy or some shit, glances around to make sure no one's listening before he tells Egret that Mance's cause is hopeless. Egret points out that John has never even seen the free folk go to war. He's heard enough, though, to know that while the wildlings fight bravely, they lack discipline, and that will be the death of them. Us, Egret reminds him. You're one of us. You better be, because I put my life on the line for you. She grabs him and kisses him. John hears the other wildlings making fun of them, and doesn't care. He kisses her back. When they finally broke apart, Egret was flushed. You're mine, she whispered. Mine, as I'm yours. And if we die, we die. All men must die, Jon Snow. But first we'll live. Yes, his voice was thick. First we'll live. Nothing but banger quotes in this chapter. John fills us in on what's happened since his previous chapter. They climbed down the wall at the abandoned castle of Greyguard, and Grig the Goat, greatest of all time, proved he really is by, by leading them expertly through the gift, out of sight of any watch patrols or local villagers. John wonders what Egret would do if he told her that he's still a spy for the watch. Is he, though? What good is a spy who never reports back to base? Corrin Halfhand, R.I.P., told John to do whatever it took to get the wildlings to trust him. But nothing he's done has ever been enough. The Thens always keep a wary eye on the crow come over. 
and soon it'll be too late for John to escape and bring word to Castle Black. Corrin also ordered John to fight alongside the wildlings if need be, but it turns out that's a step too far for John. Once I shed a brother's blood, I am lost. I crossed the wall for good then, and there is no crossing back. Stir, Magnar of Then, subjects John to daily interrogations about the defenses of Castle Black. John knows he can't tell obvious lies, but he also can't tell the truth, because the truth is that Castle Black has no defenses on the southern side. Moreover, Elsie Mormont took all the best fighting men with him north of the wall. John doesn't know if any have made it back. I have very bad news for you there, John, but I'll let Donal Noy and Maester Aemon break it to you. They swore an oath. I didn't. Those watchmen left behind are in no shape to take on the battle-hardened Thens, in particular the current commander at Castle Black, Bowen Marsh, the old pomegranate, who's always been way better at accounting than fighting. John has to slip away to warn them, but he can never seem to find the chance. And even if he does get away, what will the Thens do to Egret? He's grown so close to her, an intimacy that feels like a part of him, even as another part of him is horrified by that. John wonders if his father felt this way about his mother. Oh, you don't, you don't even know how true that is, buddy. <laughs> it's not just Egret either. While the Thens don't care for John and don't speak his language anyway, Jarl's raiders are friendly. John was coming to know them despite himself. Gaunt, quiet Eruk and gregarious Grig the Goat, the boys Quart and Bodger, Hempen Dan the Rope Maker. The worst of the lot was Dell, a horse-faced youth near John's own age who would talk dreamily of this wildling girl he meant to steal. She's lucky, like your egret. She's kissed by fire. John had to bite his tongue. He didn't want to know about Dell's girl or Bodger's mother, the place by the sea that Hank the Helm came from, how Grig yearned to visit the green man on the Isle of Faces, or the time a moose had chased a toefinger up a tree. He didn't want to hear about the boil on Big Boyle's arse, how much ale stone thumbs could drink, or how Quartz's little brother had begged him not to go with Jarl. Quart could not have been older than 14, though he had already stolen himself a wife and had a child on the way. Might be he'll be born in some castle, the boy boasted. Born in a castle like a lord. He was very taken with the castles they'd seen, by which he meant watchtowers. What about John's actual best friend, Ghost? No offense, Sam. John has no idea if the wolf ever made it back to Castle Black. Ghost isn't even showing up in his dreams anymore, making John feel more alone than ever. As they leave the trees for open territory, they notice storm clouds a-gathering. Grig, the greatest of all time, tells Stir that there's a village nearby where they can shelter from the rain. They arrive to see a ruined inn and a lake with a tower on an island on it. Hmm, why does all this sound so familiar? Well, turns out they're not alone in the village. The wildling scouts spot a fire. John thinks he's going to have to cross that line and take up arms against his brothers. Thankfully, it's only one old dude but John won't be thankful for long. John walks away while the Thens rifle through the poor guy's bags. John knows they'll kill him eventually, and wonders whether his promise to Corin really means he has to stand by and let them do it. Ugh, would that it were so simple. John tries to sneak out of the village, but one of the Thens guards notices him and turns him back. So instead, he goes to chill with Egret near the lake. I know this place, he told her when she sat beside him. That tower. Look at the top of it the next time the lightning flashes. Tell me what you see. Aye, if you like, she said. And then, some of the Thens are saying they heard noises out there. Shouting, they say. Thunder. They say shouting. Might be it's ghosts. Bzz. Sorry, kids, you're both wrong. 
John has to admit that the tower looks pretty damn haunted, especially in this weather. John says they could go out and take a look. Egret's not interested in swimming in a storm, despite being half a fish, as she says. Who knew she was a secret Tully bastard? Catalin would very much not approve. John, though, says they wouldn't have to swim. They could walk on water. I guess John was Jesus all along. I guess we should have seen that coming, but with the whole rising from the dead thing. John is very rudely interrupted by a lightning bolt. Egret looks, as John asked, and sees some stones on top of the tower painted yellow. John tells her they're gold, painted in honor of Queen Alisande Targaryen, who ruled the Seven Kingdoms wisely and well alongside her husband, King Jaehaerys. Their legacy lives on, in that Chloe and I named our cats after them. They'd come north to meet with the Stark in Winterfell, but Alisande got bored. Who can blame her? The Starks aren't exactly party people. And so she flew north to visit the Wall. She stopped in this village along the way, and the locals painted the top of the tower to look like her crown. Hence the tower's name, Queen's Crown. Queen Alisande, you say? Good Queen Alisande, they called her later. One of the castles on the Wall was named for her as well, Queensgate. Before her visit, they called it Snowgate. She was so good, she should have torn that wall down. No, he thought, the wall protects the realm, from the others, and from you, and your kind as well, sweetling. I had another friend who dreamed of dragons, a dwarf. He told me... But John will have to finish making the case for Tyrion Targaryen some other time, because Athen pops up to summon John to speak with Stir. Egret comes along, because no one has the right to tell her not to, as far as she's concerned. Stir is waiting in what's left of the inn, alongside his men, and the old guy they're holding captive. Stir, never one to mince words, orders John to kill the man. John draws his sword, wondering if the man can see his black clothes. I think Stir calling you a crow might have been the giveaway there, bro. John thinks about how here in the gift, the man should have been able to light a fire without paying for it with his life. Stir repeats his order, but the old man doesn't speak, not even to beg for his life. He just stares John down. He is an old man, John told himself. Fifty, maybe even sixty. He lived a longer life than most. The Thens will kill him anyway. Nothing I can say or do will save him. Longclaw seemed heavier than lead in his hand, too heavy to lift. The man kept staring at him, with eyes as big and black as wells. I will fall into those eyes and drown. The Magnar was looking at him too, and he could almost taste the mistrust. The man is dead. What matter if it is my hand that slays him? One cut would do it, quick and clean. Longclaw was forged of Valyrian steel, like ice. John remembered another killing, the deserter on his knees, his head rolling, the brightness of blood on snow, his father's sword, his father's words, his father's face. Ugh, that's perfect writing. I know what happens and I'm still all tense. Egret urges John to do it in order to prove he's one of them. John protests, but Egret points out that John was willing to kill her and her comrades up in the Frostfangs to avoid detection. That's all they're trying to do now. John flat out refuses to kill the old man. Stir tries to make it an order, but John says he doesn't take orders from Stir any more than Egret does. But speaking of Egret, she shows no such hesitation, cutting the old man's throat and throwing the blade at John's feet. The honeymoon is officially over. The Magnar said something in the old tongue. He might have been telling the Thens to kill John where he stood, but he would never know the truth of that. Lightning crashed down from the sky, a searing blue-white bolt that touched the top of the tower in the lake. They could smell the fury of it, and when the thunder came, it seemed to shake the night. And death leapt down amongst them.
Alright, after two chapters worth of buildup, it's fireworks factory time. All John sees at first is a shadow ripping the wildlings to pieces. Is it one of Melisandre's shadow babies? Nah, she's not this far north yet. It's a dire wolf. John thinks for a second that ghost left the wall, which is a hilarious image, but the next bolt of lightning reveals that the wolf's fur is gray. In the middle of the chaos, John suddenly realizes that this is the opportunity he's been waiting for. He cuts down everyone between him and the old man's horse, leaping onto it and riding like hell. John doesn't even bother to try and direct the horse. He's having enough trouble holding on for dear life. Gradually, the voices behind him fade, and then the rain does too. Only now does John realize he's been shot. Adrenaline is a hell of a drug. The arrow is tucked deep into his thigh. To distract himself from the pain, he thinks about the wolf. It was a dire wolf, he knows it. But a gray one? Has Rob come home? Ooh, so close, and yet so far. The distraction doesn't work for long. John knows he has to get that arrow out of him, now if not sooner. He just barely manages to fight through the pain and do it. To be honest, I have trouble reading this part. Even after John gets it out, he practically bleeds to death before he can bind up the wound. He looks at the arrow, but can't quite tell if it's egrets. If so, he owes her one for not hitting the horse instead. Thunder rumbled softly in the distance, but above him the clouds were breaking up. John searched the sky until he found the ice dragon, then turned the mare north for the wall and castle black. The throb of pain in his thigh muscle made him wince as he put his heels into the old man's horse. I'm going home, he told himself. But if that was true, why did he feel so hollow? He rode till dawn, while the stars stared down like eyes. And that is the synopsis for both the Storm of Swords Brand 3 and Jod 5. What did you think of these chapters, Manu? Plural, chapters. These chapters on reread live in the shadow of the Red Wedding, of Oberyn's arrival, of Jamie's Kingslaying Truth. But my first time through, I felt a thrill when I realized what was happening, like a climax, how close Bran and John were to crossing paths. The Stark kids have been dispersed to the wind, seemingly not to reunite until winter eventually comes. But this near miss, punctuated with a little mystical action set piece, creates a rush, reminding us these point of view chapters, however distant, are always a breath away from crashing into each other. Totally agreed. This maybe isn't as high a peak as Davos being promoted to the Hand of the King, or the last couple Arya chapters with Beric and Thoros that we had such great guests on for, but on its own terms as a self-contained set piece, this works perfectly. Here we are in the exact middle of a storm of swords, and we have two chapters reflecting each other across that divide, just like the Tower of Queen's Crown reflected in the lake below in the opening words of Bran's chapter. That mirror image stands in for the two chapters, as well as the two cultures, Northmen and Wildling, coming into conflict here despite having so much in common. You could even say it represents Bran possessing Hodor, with the lake reflection representing the mind, the space under the surface where Bran takes over, looking back at his own body like mirror images. All of which is to say this is a case where the structure elevates the material. These chapters work better together than they ever would have apart. George spends a lot of time across these two chapters investing in the setting, both the gift generally and Queen's Crown specifically. The point of this is very clear. John and Bran are about to physically share a space, so let's flesh that space out. As Emmett said, George flexes his Tolkien-esque imagery, situating the reader in amongst the apple trees, the wind on your face, the nuts and leaves and thorns crunching underfoot. But its purpose doesn't end there. 
These details end up being cues to the reader that John and Bran are about to cross paths. And the clear geography of the village means when we get to the fireworks factory, all the action is intelligible to the reader as John makes his escape. Yeah, this is a part of the story where you have to talk about the first read and the reread as very different experiences. All the descriptions pay off when George starts repeating them in the John chapter. So on reread, it's easy to dismiss the Bran chapter as just set up for the punchline of the John chapter, which does have a lot more going on. But on first read, this still works on its own terms, following up on the wistful mood and vivid nature imagery of the last couple Bran chapters. You can look at Bran's story in A Storm of Swords as reflecting the cycle of the seasons, four chapters for four seasons. We started off with green imagery farther south, summer full of energy as the Prince of the Wood, the warmth of the Little's fire, and the false spring at the tourney in Harrenhal. Now we're in autumn, fallen leaves and mushy apples, crisp weather that threatens to give way to a storm. It's the perfect backdrop for the melancholy mood of this chapter, and it fits Bran's character arc as well. He is moving further and further away from the cradle of his childhood. Every step is into more uncertain territory, where he has to rely on myth as much as history, two kinds of memory he brings together as one. It's autumn, and the hearth of home is behind him. Ahead of him, winter is coming, bringing with it adulthood and mortality, all of which is perfectly reflected back at Bran by the Night Fort, the setting of his next and last chapter in the book. And as you can imagine, I am excited for that one. <laughs> oh, I, d I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> Let's uh, talk about the gift first, which breaks down into two parts. Brandon's gift, given to the Night's Watch in perpetuity back from time immemorial. The popular story is that Brandon the Builder bequeathed it to the Watch, but it could have been some other Brandon too. That Bran is all Bran theory seed is strong. Brandon's gift covers the stretch of land east to west from Shivering Sea to the Bay of Ice, 25 leagues immediately south of the Wall. 200 years prior to the events of our story, Good Queen Alysanne added another 25 leagues to its south, making the gift as a whole expanded 50 leagues down south from the Wall, a total of about 45,000 square miles. Instantly, we have ancient and recent history crashing into each other, kings and queens from different pasts governing the now, or at least their policy de decisions still informing the current state of the gift. Brandon's gift isn't really contested during our various stories in Westeros. Probably since it's been in effect for thousands of years, the people of this country take it as a given. The new gift, being of much more recent vintage, does not escape politicization, details we learned in the, Wind, the World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood. About a month ago, a Girls Gone Canon episode on A Storm of Swords Brand 3 got into the parallels with FDR's New Deal, which I recommend everyone check out. At the heart of the new gift is land reform, and me just saying land reform on this podcast means I'm probably now on some CIA hit list. Feudal and capitalist societies are predicated on the private ownership of property, be it the noblesse or the bourgeoisie. Land reform in real life usually means giving land to those that work it, peasants and or the working class, taking it away from private, often foreign investors. If you look at the governments that the U.S. has tried to overthrow in the last 70-some years, it nearly always comes back to local and freely elected socialist governments instituting some level of agrarian reform to undo the wounds of colonialism. 
These governments try to remove American capitalists who had exploited their lands and their peoples, which then causes the U.S. to strike back, overtly or covertly using the military and CIA, or through economic sanctions and the IMF and World Bank. This is the truth found at the heart of so many U.S. interventions, from Iran to Chile to Zaire, Congo, Guatemala and Bolivia, Argentina and Poland. Even the countries that the U.S. State Department tells you are its enemies, like Cuba, North Korea, or Venezuela, all instituted some level of land reform and as of now have held off any U.S. overthrow attempts. Part of the reason land reform is so essential to these global South countries, often with heavy indigenous or mixed indigenous populations, is that the peoples don't view land through a lens of private ownership. Many indigenous societies do not think land is something to be owned in the first place, publicly or privately. It's there for everyone, and that's why so many groups are able to live on land in a sustainable manner, whereas a capitalist or feudal lord would be more interested in extracting every last bit of wealth, no matter how much the land or the people are used up in the process. The wildings... The wildlings then make a good stand-in for the indigenous peoples, who do not have the same conception of land ownership as those in the Seven Kingdoms proper. The politics of land reform in Westeros are far different from that, of course, but I think it's worth highlighting that these are all events that were occurring during George's formative years, one an ostensibly left-of-center anti-war individual would be paying attention to. And I think you can see some of that in the political tensions that arose out of the new gift. The Lords of Winterfell publicly backed the idea of giving up northern lands to the Watch, but privately it seems they were much more mixed on it. Alaric, the Stark in Winterfell during Alysanne's visit, had to be coaxed into giving up those lands, and two generations later, Lord Allard reached out to the Citadel opposing the new gift since he was reigning Lord when it fully went into effect. There is some dispute about this and a possible factual error in the World of Ice and Fire, but that's neither here nor there. There's a presumption here that the Stark hesitancy was due to the objections from their northernmost lords, such as the Umbers who would lose land in the process, and thus any incomes generated from there, which would then instead flow to the Night's Watch instead of the Lords of the North. Class tensions aside, Fire and Blood and House of the Dragon complicate the why of Alysanne's new gift. According to Bran, she was enchanted by the bravery of the rangers, and presumably the land grant would allow them to better sustain their forces and expand their numbers. That's the story as we knew it until about five years or so ago, when Fire and Blood learned us that Alysanne tried many times to take her dragon Silverwing over the wall, but to no avail. And while this may just be House of the Dragon canon, Aegon's prophecy of seeing the Long Night, the one that was passed heir to heir to until at least Rhaenyra, could be an animating factor too. Either of these, or both in concert, could explain why the good queen wanted to further reinforce the Night's Watch. She may have explicitly known something was coming, or been so freaked out by Silverwing's behavior that she figured something bad existed to the far north. John tells Egret that his father Ned had considered resettling the new gift as well, at least after the next winter, raising up new lords to cultivate the land who would pay homage to the Night's Watch instead of Winterfell. This would be a tricky sort of politic, balancing the needs of northern lords versus the Watch, but it does show that Ned wasn't just a good man who got eaten up by politics. He thought long and hard about governing his entire kingdom and how best to use that land, how best to reward his allies. It's a strain of politic that Stannis himself will take up upon his arrival in the North, and perhaps after the Long Night, a king or queen in the North may realize Ned Stark's dream. 
The other thing concerning the gift is the where, as in where the fuck is everyone? (laughs) This is good fertile land with open fields ready to be tilled, even against harsh northern winters. Apple trees are abundant, and with 50-some leagues of coast on either side, seafood and sea trade should all be viable, making this a potent habitat. The problem is raids by the wildlings, who climb or circumvent the wall, then raid the inhabitants south of it. As we learned in John 4, seasoned raiders know not to raid the first hut or village you find, since that will bring the watch down on you immediately. Go further inland, further south, for greater chance of success, which will necessarily take them from Brandon's gift into the new gift. The wildlings have forced migration upon the people who held these lands, either further into the mountains from which Brandon and company just emerged, or east of the King's Road to find protection under the banners of Umber. But I do want to build upon what I said in John 4. The violence committed by the free folk are downstream from the violence that is the wall, an artificial dividing line that necessarily causes the desperation of material conditions that causes those southward migrations. I think this is another plus in the ways Brand 3 and John 5 work in tandem. Brand and John can give us the political orientation of the northern lords on these issues, to the point of believing scare stories about wildlings drinking blood from skulls, while Egret and the rest of John's band allows us a wholly different interpretation. For Egret, much of this open, uninhabited land pocked with abandoned towers and villages is a wonder. She had never seen stone towers before, and she can't even fathom how they were built without literal giants. John, not unkindly, tells her how it's done, that men have built even taller towers, but whether she believes him is a whole other matter. We look up at the same towers and see such different things. Or something like that. (laughs) Exactly. And yeah, that's a great point. I was thinking about that a lot on Reread. How the collision of these characters creates suspense and dramatic irony, of course, but also allows us to see those different perspectives in action, because they're looking at literally the same things. Bran gives us the child's view on things, which George has said he struggles to write, but I think he still does a great job capturing all the little currents of emotion Bran gets lost in when the reads aren't forcing him to focus on something. Right at the start of the chapter, George compares the wind-blown ripples on the lake to boys running around and playing. Remember, Bran can't do that anymore because he fell from a tower like this one. Summer goes after some deer, and Bran wants to warg in, join the chase, but Mira is calling him ahead. Perfect little illustration of his competing incentives. Rational and primal. Prince of men and prince of wolves. Back in The Clash of Kings, I broke that divide down in terms of Bran's mentors. Jojen stood in for the magical, mystical side, and Maester Lewin stood in for the rational, political side. It might seem like Jojen won that debate just by virtue of still being alive, but Bran is still drawing from Lewin's wisdom, even after the Maester's death. It both warms and breaks my heart when he manages to recall the specific phrase for their sustenance and support. He's proud of himself, like Lewin would have been, which shows how good a teacher and mentor the Maester was. He prepared Bran to do it on his own. At the same time, Bran's education is filtered through his age. He's learned the letter of the law, rather than the spirit. He's memorized the words, but he still doesn't know how to read between the lines. The question of what it means in practice for this land to belong to the Watch for its sustenance and support is taken up in the John chapter. The only way Bran can interpret Alysanne adding to the gift is that she thought the Night's Watch was so brave. 
Nothing else, no larger political concerns play into it. They were brave, and they got rewarded for it by a good queen. And you know she's a good queen because she does things like reward brave men for being so brave. It reminds me of uh, a movie I know a lot of people don't like, but I love uh, AI, artificial intelligence. And when Haley Joel Osment, the baby robot, is being abandoned by his mother heartlessly in the forest, and he's like, he, she read Pinocchio to him earlier, so she, he's like, if I find the blue fairy and I can become real like Pinocchio, can I come back home? And she's like, that's just a story. And he just yells, a story tells what happens. And that makes me think of Bran as this still naive, childish view of like, this, the story has to represent reality, otherwise what, what good is it? Even when Bran accurately assesses the incentives of the local small folk, that they moved into Umber territory to get raided by the wildlings less frequently, it's in the context of the stories he's heard from Old Nan, about the wildlings doing things like drinking blood from people's skulls. Keep in mind that Bran has met and befriended a wildling, Osha, who risked her life to save Bran's and has now devoted herself to Rickon. Sure, he met her in violent circumstances, but even then it was never the plan to drink blood from anyone's skull. And yet Bran still passes on this story, without hesitation, never even thinking of saying anything else. Because the myth of the wildlings as inhuman barbarians runs so deep that even personal experience of the reality of human complexity doesn't erase it completely. The politics of the gift reflect that complexity, as you were saying. The migrations of the small folk are downstream of the war against the wildlings maintained by the Watch, the Crown, and the, lo and the local lords, all in their own way. The end result is that no one wins. No one is making use of this bountiful land because no one can agree on whose bounty it is. The other half of the setting equation is Queen's Crown, named for the good Queen Alisane. Brand 3 is the first mention of that good Queen moniker, though it's possible Davos referred to his ship, the Queen Alisane, as good at some point before it burned up on the Blackwater. The good Queen title will also be repeated by John in his half of the scene as well. This is the seed that will bloom into a big part of The World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood Volume 1, in which Queen Alysanne emerges as one of the most remarkable characters in all of George's writing, even outshining her husband Jaehaerys, who is considered the best king Westeros has ever seen. The Good Queen also stands in contrast to The Mad King, opposite not only in quality, but in gender too. Our most recent chapter coverage have given us a lot of information on Aerys Targaryen, but as the story shifts back northwards, these tell us about Alysanne Targaryen, one of the sovereigns of the Seven Kingdoms who imprinted on the North. The holdfast in these chapters aren't the only keeps bearing her legacy. The castle Queensgate, one of the 19 manning the wall, takes its name from her as well, formerly Snowgate. If the show can be believed, I wonder if this is a small hint to the endgame in the North, John will be crowned king in the north for the long night, but afterwards, the crown goes to Sansa, who herself is determined to be a good queen, and the name Elaine she takes in the Vale is very similar to Alysanne. John and Bran both using the good queen to refer to Alysanne speaks to the pedagogy in the north, that this is something they specifically were taught, even if it's just a phrase they picked up from old Nan. Alysanne made such an impression on then-Lord of Winterfell, Alaric Stark, and that interpretation may have been passed down through the Stark family tree, and in addition to the places carrying on her meme described above. John actually describes Alysanne's jaunts north from Winterfell as being out of boredom, which is incongruous with the more active Alysanne we know from Fire and Blood. Likely just something George gardened out later, though it's interesting to think about how the boys like Bran and John might be taught this some 200 years later. 
And as Daenerys' dragons grow over in Essos, we are learning more and more about how dragons were deployed, not just leading armies, but traveling to and fro and being used to weave together a kingdom, however effectively. That's a great point about the contrast between Alisanne and Eris. The apex of Targaryen rule versus the nadir. The reason to keep them around versus the reason to take them down. If you break down what made Eris an unacceptable ruler to the people who rebelled against him, it's that he had no interest in other powerful people's interests. I mean, sure, it didn't help that he burned people alive, but let's be honest, if Eris had burned a bunch of peasants, he might have gotten some pushback, but nothing approaching a rebellion. What brought him down is that he acted like Lord Ricard Stark and his heir had no rights. That threatened John Arryn, etc. From what we know of the Southron Ambitions Coalition that rebelled against Eris, they were all about preserving their rights and privileges against the Iron Throne. But it wasn't Eris who first provoked that reaction. It was his grandfather, Aegon V, aka Egg, who was trying to limit the rights of the lords to exploit and brutalize the small folk. Egg and the Mad King might seem like they have nothing in common. But from the perspective of the Lords Paramount, both kings were infringing on their rights. The Lords didn't really care about the why of it all. Oh, you want to help our people? Oh, you want to hurt our people? Whatever. That's our people. That's our shit. Get out of it. Alisanne and the New Gift is an example of how a monarch can assert themselves over local authorities without immediately causing a rebellion. J. Harris and Alisanne were consensus builders, supporters of infrastructural projects that would pay dividends down the line. That's not to say it went over easy. As you say, the Starks weren't happy with losing that land for themselves. There's always an opportunity cost, which we have to keep in mind when we talk about settling the wildlings south of the Wall. Even with the best of intentions, someone's going to lose, so governance is more of a spectrum than an on-off switch. But Alisanne made it happen because she was able to charm Elaric Stark, something Egg was never able to do, and Eris didn't even try to do. She played the game, and won. Something to keep in mind for A Dance with Dragons, in which both Jon and Stannis separately struggle with how to politically sell their platforms. Egret has a different take on Alisanne, that if she really was as good as the stories say, she would have torn down the wall. The very fact that these divisions and inequalities still exist demonstrates that the best king and queen Westeros ever saw were still kicking the can down the road. They were solving symptoms rather than core problems. The core problem, as John thinks, is that there's no way to tear down the wall without exposing all of Westeros to the White Walkers. Mance Raider and his wife Dalla bring up this issue when John meets with them later. That while many wildlings want them to blow the Horn of Winter and bring the wall down, doing that would destroy their only protection against the others. But in John's mind, the wall also exists to protect the Seven Kingdoms from raiders like Egret. He's conflating the others with the wildlings. Part of John's character arc is that he learns better than that leading to his great declaration in A Dance with Dragons that when the Watchmen swore to defend the realms of men, that included the wildlings. Because what are they if not men? Rather than destroy the wall or leave the wildlings on the wrong side of it, the best case scenario is to bring the wildlings through the wall and then mutually defend it against the others, which John and Stannis at least start to do, albeit in very different ways. So as the storm is about to roll in, Bran suggests staying in the holdfast out on the lake, even though there doesn't appear to be a pathway out to the castle. Bran explains otherwise, though. There is a secret causeway that can barely be seen below the waterline, three feet wide. Though it appears the start of the causeway and front gate of the castle line up, the path itself veers and turns under the waterline. It's not a straight, invisible bridge like the third trial to get to the Holy Grail, if Indiana Jones is to be believed. On that note, this hidden pathway is one of my favorite little flourishes in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's George taking something very practical, but imbuing it with a sense of the magical and how it can be interpreted. 
John stumps Ygritte with it. She calls it a Southern sorcery before he gets to explain it all. A hundred years from now, when someone chronicles the young adventures of King Bran in Fire and Blood Volume 7, you can imagine the purple prose of, and then the young prince led his follower to Queen's Crown, walking on water on the path of the righteous, while his pursuers were thrown into the water, or some bullshit like that. <laughs> it's an idea that's so fun, George decided to remix it when fleshing out House Valerion and their second castle at Driftmark, known as High Tide. High Tide doesn't have a hidden causeway in the same way, but when Blackwater Bay is at its highest mark, all the surrounding lands get drowned, and the only approach left is a narrow causeway. For both castles, the long and narrow path is defensive in its own right, but also creates a tactical advantage to the besieged, as they can rain fire down on enemies working their way towards the front gate, which can only do so in a narrow column. The whole fast itself is worse for the wear. Parts of it are crumbling, the ironwork is rusted, and most despairingly of all, they can't seem to get into the inner sanctum. Hodor tries to push open the inner gate to no luck, but Bran is able to open up the murder holes above them so they can all climb through in turn. Murder hole could also be a term used to describe Blood Raven's cave, and again going by the show, could also be a hole that Hodor himself has trouble squeezing out of when the time comes. Mira japes that Bran is stronger than Hodor here, but Bran would never have been able to reach the murder hole unless he was on Hodor's back. Bran and Hodor are two different people that are beginning to merge as one, something that comes to a head with the no more Hodoring sequence in this chapter, and then into Bran slipping into his skin regularly during A Dance with Dragons. Once inside, the band make their way up to the fifth and highest floor of the keep, getting an expansive view of all that is around them the foothills and the mountains to the south, and the rolling fields of the gift in every other direction. Bran cannot yet see the wall, though, and while that isn't their ultimate destination, I think it's symbolic that on this quest, they cannot yet see the light at the end of the tunnel, because that tunnel's end is still leagues beyond even the wall. They're not afforded a quest marker because they still, as of yet, don't really know how they're going to cross the wall. Or as the Oracle says in The Matrix Reloaded, we can never see past the choices we don't understand. Conversation eventually turns to that very specific point. How will they cross the wall? One of the unmanned castles at the wall is Jojen's thought, which Bran thinks to himself, ghost castles. Bran gets to be our info dump guy here about them, but this is a good spot to talk about Bran and stories, as he's a major conduit of them getting from the page into the reader's minds. He lives at the Nexus. Thanks to Ned and Old Nan and Lewin, Bran gets to deliver lore and history and stories to the reader as much as any other character, but he's also the recipient of them, from the likes of Lewin and Old Nan and Mira like the Knight of the Laughing Tree, and probably Bloodraven as well. This speaks to Bran's future role as a three-eyed crow, someone who both experiences stories of the past, but also is in a place to manipulate, to write new stories for the future. All he will be privy to as part of his green-seeing. It's in line with something Emmett has talked about at length in his coverage of Lord of the Rings, stories about stories, and how the stories we are in are a reflection of the stories we tell ourselves, and how the story we tell ourselves define the stories we are in. This is all very salient in a chapter that's touched with Tolkien's sense of imagery as well. Like I said, George has a hard time writing Bran, and I can see why, as a lot of it comes down to the reader being able to pick up on things Bran doesn't. George turned that potential weakness into a strength in Bran's last chapter with the Knight of the Laughing Tree story. A lot of the pathos there came from the reader understanding 
that Bran doesn't understand the story he was just told. That dramatic irony is very poignant. It reminds me of my own childhood, how I seized upon the structure and details of various stories without really tapping into the subtext, the deeper feelings that resonate. That was partially just because my brain was still developing, but also because I didn't have many experiences of my own to draw from. Bran can't fully make sense of the stories he hears because he can't fully make sense of his own story, the one we're reading. In his next chapter, Bran will explore one of those ghost castles, the ghost castle, the night fort, and he'll find that the stories are both true and false. True in that there really is magic at work in the castle, but false in that it doesn't take the form of obvious spooky spirits like Mad Axe or the thing that came in the night. In order to grow up, Bran has to find a way of integrating fantasy with reality. We all have to do that. We look back on childhood through the lens of adulthood. What makes Bran special, as you say, is that this isn't time travel in the poetic, metaphorical sense. No, it's very literal time travel. Bran hears the stories, then lives the stories and then tells or even creates the stories, wills them into existence. He's at the nexus, like you said. He's, he's both author and audience. Back to those ghost castles, though. Bran talks to the 19 that exist, and boasts that he was able to recount them all to his uncle Benjen, who says he even couldn't do that. Which, I doubt that's true, but because I think it's more akin to the Podrick Tyrion banner discussion a couple chapters ago. Agreed. Benjen probably does know all 19 castles and where they are, as that could be of tactical value to the first ranger, but it's good for Bran to be given positive feedback and reinforcement for knowing his shit. The abandoned castles, however, had their paths to the north all sealed up with ice and stone, and Bran is worried about reopening them. Bad things will come through, which has a couple flavors of irony. One, that the wall has been warded against creatures passing through it, but namely, the next thing we see coming through the wall is a good thing. Maybe the best of things that exist in the story. Samuel Tarly. Bran instead says they should go to Castle Black, wielding some of that childhood naivete and assuming the Watch will listen to the Stark of Winterfell, especially if Jon or Benjen are there. Which they are not, of course, but as you said earlier, Bran sets up the possibility of Jon's return. I feel it's very poignant that Jojen uses the term your grace to address Bran here when trying to dissuade him of going to Castle Black. I am your man, it seems to imply, but I really, really need you to listen to me on this. Yeah, Jojen doesn't trust anyone outside the little group, and it's kind of the inverse of how Barak and Thoros work. Barak has to pretend to be alive, and Bran has to pretend to be dead. Part of this is the warning Maester Lewin gave them. The North is in chaos right now. What with the Ironborn invasion, the dispute over the Hornwood lands, and the way both of those contributed to the rise of Ramsay. That uncertainty is vital for the story. Not only does it keep Bran isolated, focused on his journey, but it also provides the incentive for Rob to try and get back to the North ASAP to find out what's going on. Jojen, however, is not only worried about the bad guys out there. He's equally worried about the good guys. Even if no one at Castle Black was tempted to sell Bran to his many enemies, they still might raise an eyebrow at the idea of sending this disabled kid north of the Wall, especially in the middle of a wildling invasion. As Sam later thinks, Bran's story just sounds too incredible to believe. You're going to find a three-eyed crow in the middle of the haunted forest in order to save the world from eternal winter? Yeah, sure, kid. That sounds like something out of a fairy tale. No way the Watch would let him through. So even the decent members of the Night's Watch cannot be trusted, because Bran is just operating on a whole different level. 
Of all the magical mentor characters we meet in the story, Melisandre, Quaithe, Jock and Hagar, etc., Jojen is one of the most honest and well-intentioned ones, along with Thoros. There's still a faintly sinister attitude to how Jojen keeps Bran all to himself, no one else is allowed to influence the prince's choices. But unlike, say, Jorah Mormont trying to keep other men away from Danny, there's nothing selfish about Jojen's behavior. If anything, it's the opposite problem. Jojen is selfless to a fault, willing to sacrifice anything for the mission, including himself. From his perspective, he's not even the one making the choice. Destiny is working through him. He is but an instrument of the gods. With the lone stranger taking up shelter in the Fallen Inn, the Bran gang return inside to eat and share stories. Bran tells them of the shipwright bearing his name. The storm starts to settle in over our little setting, thunder and lightning eliciting louder and louder hodors from the friendly giant. Bran has to literally use the word hodoring to make him stop, literally my favorite solecism from this entire series. The hodoring coincides with even more people showing up in the village. Armed men, several of them even, as lightning continues to crash and hodor continues to hodor. It gets loud enough that everyone needs to do their best to calm him, Bran reaching out to him much in the same manner as he does to Summer. And then, all of a sudden, Hodor is docile. Hodor is quiet. All eyes turn to Bran, but even he isn't sure exactly what he did, even though, deep down, I think he does. The ethics of human skin changing is not a topic they can debate now, however, as there is a flurry of activity back in the village, including someone pointing up at where the group is hidden. It happens super quickly, which is by design, but I want to linger on this for a moment, because in retrospect, this is the most important scene in this book for Bran's character arc, and one of the major magical moments in the story. So far in A Song of Ice and Fire, we've seen countless examples of people enforcing their will upon one another, and countless ways of doing it. We've seen everything from subtle personal manipulation to carnage on a cross-continental scale. We've seen blackmail, we've seen spies, diplomats, assassins, and we've seen many ways of working your will in the magical realm as well. Melisandre birthing living shadows, Danny raising dragons from stone, and most recently, the many resurrections of Beric Dondarrion. But what we've never seen, until right now, is one character entering the mind of another character and taking over their body. In a way, this is the most total violation imaginable. Even the Unsullied are not literally possessed by the Masters of Slaver's Bay. It's a thorough abnegation of a fellow human's dignity and agency. It's the endgame of power. Unlimited control. The closest thing we've seen to this in the story so far is the Whites, the zombies animated by some magic of the White Walkers. But on a less literal level, possession does have some things in common with the more mundane exercise of political power. It's definitely significant that the person Bran is controlling is not one of the Reeds, his fellow Highborns, but the peasant Hodor. Bran already rides Hodor around like a horse, now he's controlling him from within. Hodor can't communicate to the Reeds what's happening to him due to his disability, which takes on a whole new layer when you come back knowing that Bran is responsible for Hodor's disability. Our innocent baby boy fantasy protagonist has just committed an atrocity. But that's not really what it feels like in the moment because of how George writes it. First of all, like you said, is the speed of it. By the time Bran and the reader understands what happened, it's all over, and the chapter immediately moves on to the urgent threat of the men outside. Secondly, it only happens because of that threat. We're primed to be worried for their lives. We're probably stressed like they are with all the thunder and lightning and shouting. We just want it to stop. 
That panic is what pushes Bran over the line, potentially saving not only his own life, but also Hodor's life. He's doing this for the best possible reason, and in the moment, like you said, it doesn't even seem like he's trying to do it. All we get is Bran reaching. Reaching. The italics on that second reaching is all George needs. A switch goes off, and suddenly Bran is reaching on a whole different level, with hands that no one else can see. This is the perfect way to start, as justifiable as it could be, and over in a heartbeat. Then the steps downward begin. In Bran's next chapter, he possesses Hodor for a little longer, although still in the face of what he thinks is a threat. Turns out to be Sam, but he thinks it's a threat. In A Dance with Dragons, he starts possessing Hodor longer and longer each time, and it's not always in the face of danger. Bran starts doing it to walk, climb, feel strong again. And that is only possible because of what happens here. Bran's first taste of abomination. The gang are unable to determine who is down in the village. Is it men of the Night's Watch? Umbers, maybe? Or more mountain clansmen? The night gives them cover for now, but morning could lead to discovery of the causeway and in turn the runaway princeling. It's funny that the one group of people Bran doesn't consider here is the Wildlings, especially after noting earlier that the Wildlings are why these lands have emptied in the first place. It is in this moment that Bran feels the pull of Summer's fear and is slipped into his skin. Whereas previously we've seen Bran reach out to Summer, or even Hodor now, this warging feels more instinctual, more defensive, as if the wolf needed Bran there, perhaps sensing Jon's presence. When Jon is giving Ygritte his half of the gift's position, her awe gives us a look into Jon's heart. He'd love to take her to Winterfell, wine and dine her, introduce her to his dad, presumably the stone one down with the other lords of Winterfell in the crypts. He, rom- he romanticizes it much like Ygritte does the cave up north, but Jon's intrusive thoughts have cut him off. Winterfell will never be his. That's for a Stark, not a Snow, a bastard and traitor and wildling now too. The intentionality here is clear to me. At the end of this chapter, Jon will think to himself that he's going home, by which he means Castle Black, not Winterfell. The hollow feeling he has in the end is in large part due to abandoning Ygritte, but a non-zero portion of it may be that Winterfell, his home for 14 years, no longer feels that way to him. Yeah, really well said. What really makes this interesting for me is that there isn't just one cultural divide at work here. There are multiple layers. On one hand, you've got south of the wall versus north of the wall, but even within south of the wall, there are divisions. John's a bastard. That might not mean all that much north of the wall, but it does on the southern side. In the same way that Dorne, on the opposite end of the continent, has different rules about this sort of thing, like we were talking about in Tyrion V. So while from Egret's POV, John is a fancy lad from fancy school who knows the difference between a watchtower and a proper castle, from the POV of someone like, say, Alice or Thorne, John is a savage creature born of lust and betrayal, basically a wildling. Neither one is objectively correct. John is a star they're both looking up at and seeing different things. Not only that, but John himself changes, depending on who he's talking to. With Egrid, he emphasizes the importance of discipline. But when Alistair Thorne shows back up, John goes for his throat. And what does Thorne say? Oh, you see for yourself, brothers. The boy is a wildling. No matter where he goes, John feels like the exception, the outcast. Motherless, damned, you know the routine by now. It's like what he says to Egret in this chapter. It's just too many halves. Half watch, half wildling, half stark. Too many halves. John and Egret get into a little spat of their own once the issue of raiders comes up. 
John thinks that's the best indie movie, whereas Egret is more of a Last Crusade fan. <laughs> and Egret is correct, let me just say that. Wow, I was here brandishing my big giant sword and Emmett just pulled his gun and shot me down. <laughs> like in John 4, and as a continuation of what we talked about earlier, Egret once again points to the wall, figuratively, as the men of the North taking away land from them, from any opportunity to make a life and society outside of the wall. Yes, wildlings raid and they may take harvests and daughters, but that is a result of the militarized border enforcing a certain level of destitution on them. There is a way of life outside of private ownership of land, something that can be shared and cultivated communally and sustainably, but, that's, but that gets eroded when kings cross the sea and need to mine iron and claim ownership over the trees in the forest, the deer in the meadows, the fish in the water. It doesn't have to be this way the feudal system of kneelers, or even our real world of capitalism? John, in response, runs a play that anyone from any imperial power will know. He tries to damn an entire population by using the absolute worst of them, Harma, Dogshead, and Rattleshirt, as examples. It's no different than Republicans or even Democratic politicians in the U.S. defending the border wall to the South because of fears of criminals crossing the border. The vast majority trying to cross are poor workers and families, often trying to escape material conditions created by those in seats of power. I wouldn't call our favorite ranger Trumpian, but for as much as he scoffs at Egret for being a bloody wildling, I scoff at John for being a bloody monarchist. <laughs> yeah, this scene reminds me of the, uh, the Last of the Giants scene, where John didn't understand why Egret was so sad. Well, there were hundreds of giants. Yeah, John, but there used to be thousands, even millions. John doesn't really get the context, because he thinks of his cultural upbringing as the default. He sees the wall and the war between Watch and Wildlings as part of the natural order of things, rather than as a result of policy decisions in both the past and the present. He also doesn't seem to get how hypocritical he's being when he talks to Egret about how horrible it would be for her to get stolen by a drunk, violent man, like that would never happen south of the wall. Well, we've already seen that happen, and we will see maybe the worst version of it at Winterfell with Ramsay and Jane Poole. The difference is that south of the wall, the violence is ritualized, formalized, tucked away behind vows and cloaks, making it invisible to someone like John, but not to the women experiencing the violence. John grabs Egret tightly as he talks, too tightly, thinking he's making his point about dangerous men. But all he's revealing is his own capacity to be one of those men. Like, no one is hurting her right now, but you, my dude. <laughs> I think George does a great job of tying that intimate, gendered violence to large-scale inequalities foisted on entire peoples. Land is the source of liberation. That's a historical constant, whether you're talking about freed men in America or revolutions against the colonial powers of Europe. I've been rereading Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses, after getting the centenary edition as a gift, and it's really striking me this time how haunted that book is by the failure to achieve Irish home rule in the late 19th century. Egret is expressing that same sense of usurpation on a spiritual as well as physical level. You took the land. You took away the meaning of life and reduced everything to an iron, rigid hierarchy in which the only value is service. I love Egret's point that a thief at least has to be clever and quick to be a good thief. All a kneeler has to do is kneel, subjugate their will in exchange for food and shelter. It reminds me of the contrast between Davos and the nobleborn Florence we've been talking about on Dragonstone, which I think exists in part because Davos had to develop some skills, some canniness to get by in his life. Where I think John has a point is when the conversation shifts to what's going to happen now. Egret says that Mance Raider is going to teach the Kneelers a whole different way of life. 
But that is just impossible in military terms. John's right. When it comes to battle, the wildlings' lack of discipline is going to tell against them every time. We see that in action when Stannis arrives at the wall. His rigid, reinforced formations tear through the wildlings like tissue paper, because the wildlings are each fighting their own battle, with no regard for the big picture. Now, material conditions still factor into this. Stannis also smashes Mance because he has better swords and armor and horses than the wildlings have ever had access to. But the point still stands. If Stannis can destroy Egret's dream with his objectively tiny army, how is Mance ever going to fight the Northern Lords who would resist his presence on the gift? The answer is that he wouldn't. Mance is lying to his followers about what his master plan actually is, as he admits to John later in the book. Comparing himself to other kings in the Wall, he says, Raymond Redbeard, Bale the Bard, Gendelin Gorn, the Horned Lord, they all came south to conquer. But I've come with my tail between my legs, to hide behind your wall. The idea of showing the kneelers different isn't a military strategy. It's a political one to keep the wildlings together under Mance's command. He needs to tell them that in order to get them to follow him, and also to get them to overlook the fact that Mance himself was once a Night's Watchman. Who knows how Mance was going to sell followers like Egret on the transition from warlords to refugees? Stannis didn't exactly give him a chance. What matters here is that Jon has exposed the romantic pride at the heart of Egret's ideology. It's relatable, it's even necessary to keep her going, but it's ultimately a delusion. Mance is not here to change how Westeros works. He is here to get his people out of the path of the others. The broader political discussion eventually boils down to the personal. Egret defiant of John's hypotheticals because, in the end, she always has her knife and spear and can defend herself. And when John says Mance and his army have no chance against the Watch and Lords of the North, she reminds him that includes John too. If Bran is the conduit for stories, John is the conduit of identity, pulled this way and that by his identities as a Stark, a Snow, a Ranger, a Wildling, and eventually a Targaryen. Egret then lays a big fat one on John for all the other wildlings to see. It reminds me of the Dothraki, that intimacy is not something to be kept in private, but something to be championed in front of your community. Egret drops a banger quote here, and if we die, we die. All men must die, Jon Snow, but first we'll live. Let's pretend it's the year 1998, and your host Manu is 14 years old and is asked what his favorite movie quote is. The first that comes to mind is from Edward James Almos's gaff in Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. It's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? And the second that comes to mind is, regrettably, from 1995's Braveheart, <laughs> where William Wallace, moments before his execution, says, Every man dies. Not every man really lives. Those two quotes, along with Egret's, have real carpe diem energy, but one that acknowledges, or is even defiant of, our limited time on this earth. Death is so terribly final, while life is full of possibilities. For all this talk of monarchs and raiders, gifts and walls and the wars to come, we as individuals don't have control of the context we are born into, and often are not empowered to break free of those limits. All we can do is decide what to do with the time that is given. I think the inclusion of all men must die in Egret's words also speak to a shared truth across this world, something she and her free folk believe that's kin to Valar Margulis in the remnants and children of the Valyrian stronghold. It's a universal truth, the way all cultures and religions have to overlap in the realm of death. How to contextualize it, 
How to Face It. It links us from John's chapters to Arya's to Daenerys's, a common bond all mortal people share. Yeah, I love it. It's a beautiful moment. That ragged, desperate passion that defines the John Egret relationship and inspires some of George's best writing. There's a poetic rhythm to it. We'll die, first we'll live. Which we also see in John's next chapter when he thinks, you were wrong to love her, you were wrong to leave her. All these contrasting pairs to capture John's identity crisis. He's somewhere in the middle of all of them. Egret dodges John's point about valor versus discipline to zero in on that identity crisis. What do you mean all of you are going to die? Don't you mean all of us? It's a verbal slip on John's part. He's trying so hard to be an effective spy, but think about it. How does it help his mission to tell Egret this? Like, if John really thinks that Mance's cause is doomed to fail, then fine, let it fail. Even if John convinced Egret to give it all up, that wouldn't change what's already in motion, so why potentially give himself away like this? Because he cares about Egret. He wants to spare her that fate. But she would rather die than give up the cause. And that's as ambiguous as everything else in this scene. On one hand, like you say, it's an existential triumph, seizing control of your destiny regardless of mortality. All of us die, but at least all of us die. That's not a moral failing, it's inevitable. So don't let fear of death keep you from living the life you want to live. On the other hand, this is also an expression of the death drive, the psychological urge to seek your own destruction. Egret is ready, happy even, to embrace death. All the talk about living in that tower afterward, I think it's just that, talk. That's why Egret wanted to stay in the cave, north of the wall. Deep down, she knew it's the only place she and John could ever be happy together. Once the war ramps up, they're going to be on different sides. John's implicit admission to Egret that he doesn't view himself as one of them comes to the front of his mind as he recalls the journey down from the wall at Greyguard and into the gift. He knows he has to break away, has to get to Castle Black before the Magnar does, but even with all their adventures so far, over walls and under blankets, the Wildlings do not trust John. The Fens keep watch, and every night the Magnar asks John questions. He tried to fib where he could, but he knew these sessions were as much about extracting intelligence as to seeing how loyal John truly was. John also squares up the defenses of Castle Black, like Emmett said, defenses that barely exist to its south. Already in the series, we have heard the Night's Watch needs no defense to its south, since it serves the realm. But that is going to be a problem with the Thens closing in on the keep, and later the threat of the Boltons marching north against them potentially. The fortifications to the south leave much to be desired. It was a collection of towers with little in the way of walls and dikes, and the men holding it would be the least capable fighters of the bunch. And even if they were all Arthur Dane reborn, there just aren't enough of them to hold off waves of wildlings. This situation really highlights the blind spots and how the Night's Watch has been organized and maintained. Sure, having no defenses to the south prevents the Watch from being a danger to the realm. But is that really the highest priority? It's ironic that the Watch ostensibly exists to guard against dangers in the north, but the Watchmen themselves became one of those dangers. At least in the eyes of the Lords of Westeros, worried all the poachers and second sons they sent up there might decide to come home one day. In other words, even as the Watchmen take vows to stay out of anything happening south of the Wall, the weakness of those vows is structurally built into the Watch. It is assumed that enough Watchmen will break their vows to make it a bad idea to let them defend themselves from the south. You could argue that's pragmatic. Don't presume that everyone will keep their promises. Prepare for them not to. 
But it also reflects how the watch doesn't live up to its idealized self-image. Like Elsie Mormont said in his big speech in Book One, this is, this is an institution beyond the politics of Westeros where all our crimes are washed away. That's not how the Watchmen are treated, and many, if not most of them, don't choose to be here in the first place. It's a prison colony, at least in part. Look at the result. Castle Black, as you say, has no walls to defend against the Thens, which they really need right now. Everyone put their faith in the wall itself, and now that faith has been shaken. And all that just heightens John's desire to find a way back to Castle Black, but he knows he can't leave Egret without her suffering in some capacity. At the very best, he leaves her heartbroken. Worse, she may be killed for his treachery. This tears at John, especially since he shares every night with her, calling her his joy and his despair. In the same double-edged way, Jamie refers to his hand as his glory and his shame. Duality, two sides separated by a wall between them. That wall inside John gets harder and harder to hold as he further assimilates into the wildling camp. Time together forges bonds of fellowship, and John has become friends with the Quartz and Griggs and Erics of the world. He doesn't want to know them, doesn't want to know their loves and desires and habits, because that makes it all that harder for him to complete his mission. Men are men. Shared experiences are an avenue to realize our shared humanity. And while John is still focused on his military mission at the present moment, those shared experiences will have a huge influence on his time and policies as LC of the Night's Watch. John also thinks of Ghost in this moment, who he can no longer sense on the opposite side of the wall. Part of me wonders if the magic that prevented Alysanne from riding her dragon north is also what has severed the connection between John and Direwolf. But this aside about Ghost also helps cue up the finish to this chapter. John feels like a lone wolf, but he'll survive thanks to his pack, who are closer than he realizes. As Mr. Eamon told John, we were made for love, which is both our great glory and our great tragedy. That duality you were talking about, which defines John's story. What is love in practice but loyalty? So if you have split loyalties, your heart is divided against itself. It's not a question of whether or not to do your duty, it's a question of what your duty even is. Here we see lived experience as the counter-narrative to, well, narrative itself. John can't stick to the stories he was told about the wildlings drinking blood from skulls. Now that John knows the wildlings, he can't see them as a faceless inhuman mass. They're people. They're individuals with their own hopes and dreams and fears. And even as John returns to the Night's Watch, there is no taking that back. Once you see, you cannot unsee. Even if you crawl back inside Plato's cave, it'll never be the same. It's like that, uh, that scene in the best adaptation of Plato's cave, The Matrix, <laughs> when Neo asks, I can't go back, can I? And Morpheus says, no. But if you could, would you really want to? Now John understands that the end result of watch policy and Westerosi stories, the goal of all of that is for these people to die when winter comes. Starving or freezing if the White Walkers don't get to them first. And that's a reality that's all too familiar to us. Now think about how here in the United States, we've designed many immigration policies to make it so unpleasant for people who come here illegally that they won't do it, or so the theory goes. The reality is that they do it anyway, for their children's sake, if not their own. It reminds me of a documentary by the great Chantal Ackerman, one of the most fearless and talented filmmakers who ever lived, and who ultimately took her own life in 2016. From what we can tell, she was driven by despair at the death of her mother, the subject of her final film, No Home Movie which is a title I think about all the time with these characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. No home. You can never go home again. 
In the early 2000s, Ackerman made a documentary called De Lotricote, or From the Other Side, about the lives of Mexican migrants in the United States. At one point, she's talking to a Texas sheriff about deliberately cruel federal policies designed to disincentivize illegal immigration, and how they're being enforced by Doris Meissner, who was commissioner of the Immigration and Naturalization Service under Bill Clinton. You can hear Ackerman say off-camera about Meissner thinking people would no longer come. She was never hungry. And the sheriff's face lights up and he says, yeah, I couldn't have put it better. John may have been at the bottom of the totem pole at Winterfell, but Donald Noy taught him that he was never hungry. Now he's relearning that lesson on a larger scale. But it's not even the pain of the wildlings, the last of the giants, that really gets to John. It's their humanity, how they keep trying in spite of the pain. Love is John's glory. The love he makes with Egret is the most authentic and personal experience he's ever known. But it's also his tragedy. He knows these people too well to want them dead, and that messes him up inside because the duty to which he's about to return is to kill them all. They're not strangers anymore. They're friends, they're people just like him. John says that the worst of the lot is young Dell. Why is he the worst? Because he's like John, and loves a girl like Egret kissed by fire. They're just like you. If you condemn them to death, aren't you condemning yourself? Now John knows that every time one of them dies, an entire story, an entire world goes with them. All the dreams unrealized, like angry ghosts. And speaking of ghosts, yeah, it's no accident that as John thinks about how he's both one of the wildlings and not, his mind drifts to his wolf. That's how he always felt about House Stark. Part of it, and yet not. Is he really going to turn against the wildlings on behalf of a world that never had room for him? If this isn't his pack, then what is? The combination of an imminent storm and a nearby ruined village immediately warns us we're about to tread some familiar ground, right before John explicitly notes the watchtower on the lake. But unlike Bran's approach, there's no, si no time to sit and take in the sights. The stranger camping in the Broken Inn needs dealing with. John tries to avoid all this outright, wandering, unsure where he belonged, whether in the camp or in life. Jon Snow makes a great emo hero, doesn't he, folks? <laughs> he sure does. He sure does. He finds Egret to chat to, about Queen's Crown, about Alysanne, and a lot of jazz we discussed already. She mentions some of the Thens heard sounds from the tower. We have to remember, if Bran and company are discovered, especially after Jon flees, they would meet the same fate as the old man will here in a minute. We can appreciate how close they all were to a much worse fate if anyone investigated Hodor's Hodoring. Before John is called by the Thens, he's about to tell Egret of Tyrion, his friend who dreamed of dragons. Nothing by accident in these stories. Even though John and Tyrion are long separated, the connection between them is worth reminding readers of, even if John is cut short before he can tell Egret what Tyrion told him. The Magnar orders him to kill the stranger, and the stranger was only spotted because of his fire, which reminds John of Corrin's words. Fire can be life, but it can also be death a duality that's old hat for George. The real irony is in what John thinks next, that a fire south of the wall, under protection of the law, should be freely made without fear of being murdered. He's right, of course, but that should also be true north of the wall. And that de death comes specifically because a border was arbitrarily laid down and a military unit was ordered to defend it. It's a deliberate policy choice to wage war against the free folk. A system of free exchange and passage could theoretically exist, something we see John and Stannis working towards soon enough. 
The original sin here is definitely the border war. As we've been saying, that's what divides the resources, that's what creates the incentives, and that's what makes moments like this inevitable. I do think, however, that George is trying to complicate our understanding of the power dynamics involved when it comes to this scene specifically. It's no accident that the wildlings threatening this guy are the least free of the free folk. They're the Thens, who operate on the same principles of feudalism as any Southron lord. They're not interested in Egret's revolution. Stir is 100% on board with owning land and bossing <laughs> people around. More to the point, this random guy really has nothing to do with the border war, or any of the policies and histories involved in that. The actual people responsible for the wildlings' plight are not here, just as they're not the ones who suffer from the raids. They shield themselves from the consequences of their own actions. It reminds me of when the Brotherhood put Sandor on trial. Their cause was unquestionably just. Their losses real and grievous and demanding some form of redress, but would killing Sandor really account for that? And at least Sandor really did kill a kid. <laughs> this guy is a stranger to us as much as to John. He's not dying for a crime. He's dying for being here. Maybe the better comparison is the King's Landing riot in Book 2, an inevitable response to the cruel and absurd state of affairs under Joffrey's rule, but one that targeted people like Sansa and Lawless Stokeworth, as well as the King himself. Who's the underdog in any given moment? That's a question that keeps coming up in John's chapters. He thought he was the underdog at Winterfell, but he wasn't at Castle Black. The Wildlings are the underdogs in the big picture of the Border War. But they aren't in this moment, compared to this nameless traveler. Nor are they during the initial stages of the battle at Castle Black, currently defended by a band of cripples and orphans, as Mance Raider puts it. The core truth, as you say, is that men are men. Stir is a human being, making choices just like John is making choices. He is capable of mercy, and he is forsaking it. The context still applies. There are no good options here. The wildlings don't want to get caught, as Egret says. But Stir is also ordering John specifically to kill this guy because he knows he knows John won't do it, and he's looking for an excuse to kill him. John's reluctance is equally complicated. Corrin ordered him to do whatever it takes to prove himself to the wildlings to serve the overall cause. It's the same dilemma the righteousness and urgency of the cause versus the dignity and worth of individual lives. So it's not only the wildling cause pushing John to kill this man, it's also the cause of the watch, it's also Corrin Halfhand, perfectly illustrating how the border war has hollowed out everyone's humanity in the same way as it's prevented anyone from enjoying this land. Everyone is reduced to a pawn. I really love how George writes John's hesitation here. As in specifically, he does not write, John hesitates. He has John pull the sword without objection, but then his mind wanders. Only when Steer accuses him of hesitating does the author explicitly communicate that John is reluctant. John himself is too preoccupied with the man, not even begging for his life. He just stared back, unsettling John with accusation and appeal. Unfortunately, the quality of the writing doesn't save John's moral dilemma. If the man is doomed, does it matter who kills him? Is he duty-bound to do this, as a man who swore to Corrin Halfhand that he would not balk? Was he duty-bound to deny this, as a man sworn to protect the realms of men, as a son of Winterfell? Naturally, John's thoughts drift back to the execution of Garrett at the beginning of A Game of Thrones, which was, of course, Bran Chapter 1, another hint at the upcoming crossover. Egret instead recalls John and Corrin attacking her camp back in A Clash of Kings, and how John didn't hesitate to kill Orel and only stopped short with Egret for gender reasons. John ret retorts that they were sentries, and Egret snaps back that this old man is effectively the same. 
When Steer makes it an official order, John tries to play the free folk card. It's bold, but not one of the wildlings are inclined to buy it. Egret doesn't take too kindly to being called a crow wife and furiously does the deed herself. I think what we see here is that John's willingness to do whatever it takes was only pure in the abstract. It got complicated as soon as he got to know the wildlings. And by the same token, the idea of shedding blood to keep his disguise intact was a lot easier to swallow when it wasn't a flesh-and-blood person staring into his eyes. I love George's emphasis on the man's silence. We don't learn anything about him. His name, where he's from, where he was going. He doesn't even beg for his life. John invents pleas for him in his head. That's his conscience going haywire, telling him what a wretched act this would be, just like when he wonders if the man can see his black cloak. But the man himself gives John nothing. I like that. He's preserving his dignity in a way, refusing to make the choice easy on John. There's also an irony here in that the Thens are worried this guy would talk, and here he is refusing to say a word. George does such a terrific job with John's inner monologue here, something he builds on beautifully in A Dance with Dragons, alternating between plain text and italicized text to capture how John's frantic thoughts are colliding with his external actions. It's one of those moments where time slows to a crawl, the agony of a protracted choice. John tries to tell himself it's not a choice at all. If he refuses, the Thens will kill him anyway. There's no way he can save this guy, so what's the practical result of refusal? Well, the practical result isn't external, but internal. John will have become a different kind of person, resolving his identity crisis in the worst way. Egret compares it to John attacking the sentries and the Frostfangs, but they were armed, and as soon as Egret wasn't armed, both John and Corin decided to spare her, albeit for different reasons. This man is not armed. He has no fighting chance. Killing him is murder. Worse even than the butchery John thinks will descend upon Castle Black if he doesn't warn them. Killing him is murder, worse even than the butchery John thinks will descend upon Castle Black if he doesn't warn them. Longclaw hangs heavy in John's hand. At least it will cut clean, he thinks, and that takes him back to where he first met John. Ned and Ice, the execution of Garrett, another innocent man who refused to say a word in his own defense. That was Bran's initiation into manhood and violence simultaneously, bound together for him. John was the one who made him watch, because father will know if you look away. That's what it meant to be family, to be themselves. And now John can't bring himself to do it. Thinking of his father's sword, his father's words, his father's face, peak prose from George there. A great poetic riff on just how much Ned's example means to John. Sword and words are anagrams. John is trying to convert words, the promise he made to Corn, the ideals he learned from Ned, into swords. But above all, he thinks of his father's face, which is a more ambiguous image than it might seem. Is he thinking of Ned's kindly father face, the quiet wolf? Or is he thinking of the Lord's face Ned wore to get through execution? Which was the real man? Which was the mask? Which does John want to wear? Is he like Ned? Or is he more like the deserter? Ultimately, John chooses mercy, which Ned didn't when it came to Garrod, although he did when it came to Cersei's children. And just like John thought, it doesn't save the man's life. Although he was wrong in one respect. He thought the Thens would kill the old man, but Egret does it, in order to demonstrate that John does not speak for her. With that one stroke, she separates them, making manifest in blood their earlier disagreements. This is what you won't do, but I will. 
John worried earlier about what would happen to Egret if he left, that the connection between them would turn into a noose around her neck once he left her world for his. Now we see that she was thinking about it too, and was always prepared to do whatever it took to prove herself and protect herself. And the way George writes it, it's like with that sudden hideous catharsis, Egret unleashes death on the world, in the form of Summer. In the words of the alternative rock band Live from their 1994 album Throwing Copper, lightning crashes, an old man has died, a dire wolf leaps onto the floor. How did they know? (laughs) Close enough, I'd say. (laughs) Summer's arrival feels like an act of God. Before John can begin to puzzle out what is happening, he can only describe the dire wolf as an avatar of death, a force of nature, unstoppable in its fury. As Emmett said, the image of ghost leaping the walls is hilarious. Absolutely would buy that (laughs) t-shirt. Upon further lightning crashes, he discerns the gray fur, but as so often happens in this chapter, John has no time to think. He takes his opening and cuts his way out, not not heeding who is who or where. He trusts in Longclaw and then the old man's mare to get him out of there. And the mare gets a kill in too, and more importantly, keeps its footing, so John is very lucky. The old gods were with him, which is more true than he'll ever know. Only when he gets clear does he get any time to think about what just happened. His thought jumps to Rob, which, gray, gray wind, makes sense, John, good job. In the reader's mind, it briefly conjures the image of Rob returning north to take Winterfell, which serves its purpose given the king in the north strategizing before the Red Wedding. John won't be learning the supposed fates of Bran and Rickon until he returns to Castle Black in the next chapter. This duology of chapters is regarded as a highlight of the series and is the closest that two Starks have come to meeting since Ned's death. Bran and John do not truly intersect person to person, and only Bran will be sure of the fact that they did indeed cross paths, but for the most part, the outcome is positive for our two protagonists. John is able to get away and warn the Night's Watch of p- pending attack, and Bran's cadre is kept safe from being discovered by the wildlings. This near miss can also be considered a prelude to that of Arya and Catelyn and Rob at the Red Wedding. Part of the reason it hurts so bad is not just the death of characters, but just how close these Starks were to reuniting even for a moment, even in death. Ever since Sansa 3, we've been tracking how all these chapters building up to the twins includes an ingredient for the Red Wedding, and I find this crossover here between these two chapters to be this offering. It's also not until now that John realizes he's been shot in the leg, very possibly by Egret. John puzzles out whether she meant to hit him there as he also literally puzzles the arrow out of his leg, pu- pulling it straight through in one of the more painful sequences. John's amazed he was able to get a horse without a saddle or stirrups, a bit incredulous at his own hero mode to end this chapter. You can see shades of that Cambellian hero archetype in John's heroics, but George engages us so well in John's headspace that it's not hitting you over the head with it. Speaking of not hitting us over the head, a dragon leads John home, the ice dragon pointing him north and to the wall. I wonder if that has anything to do with his parentage. Hmm, I wonder... But more concretely, this chapter represents a turning point in every way for John's story in A Storm of Swords. He started in the far north and headed south. Now he's gotten as far south as he'll go and turns north. He played the part of Wildling so far. From here on out, he'll be a watchman once more. This is captured in the last words. Earlier in this book, John ruminated at the stars as he and Egret looked up at them together. Now, the stars stare down at John, alone. 
That also informs the hollowness he feels as he makes his way back to Castle Black. It's such a great ending. All the tension explodes, not only from the scene with John and the Wildlings, but also from the previous Bran chapter. The imagery is chaotic in a very cinematic way. The flashes of light and dark, only glimpses of what's happening. But the reader knows what's going on the entire time. It's summer. Or, more accurately, it's Bran inside summer. And this scene is often criticized for the deus ex machina of summer rescuing John, because it prevents John from facing the consequence of the choice he just made. You could say I guess it's a cheat in a dramatic sense, but this is an example of how that kind of thing really isn't a hard and fast rule. This still works for me, because of how, because of how quickly and chaotically it happens, and because the consequences do play themselves out over the next couple John chapters. All the intense, focused thoughts of the chapter give way to pure physical action, in which it hurts too much to think, as George puts it. Time slowed down when John was hesitating, and now it speeds back up. John feels detached from his body. He doesn't know how he got on the horse, he doesn't remember getting shot. That stands in for his dislocation from his self, from his identity and his decision-making. John is on the run, unmoored and alone in a way he arguably never has been before. Remember when he was running away at the end of book one to leave the Night's Watch? At least he felt good about where he was going <laughs> to join Rob, join his family. Now he doesn't even feel that. Like, you could say this is a, a new start for John. He can begin again, but he doesn't feel fresh. As the chapter ends, he thinks that he feels hollow, a nowhere man. So yeah, the stars may lead him to Castle Black, but they can't ever take him home. And that takes us into foreshadowing and groundwork for this episode. We spent a, a lot of time in these chapters talking about Queen's Crown, the backstory with Alisan, and that might be set up for Danny coming north, that we might see another Targaryen queen on Dragonback helping out the Night's Watch. Yeah, and if there is some kind of prolonged battle against the White Walkers in the north, you can p perhaps see Danny like hopping back and forth between, say, Winterfell and another keep, or Winterfell and the Wall on Dragonback, as she possibly directs different like fields of battle. Queen's Crown might make for a, a good setting in that regard, for sure. And along the same lines, is I think the same thing goes for for John's dream of showing Winterfell to Egret, this romantic dream he knows he can never he never have of showing Winterfell off to to someone who's not from there. That might actually happen with Danny. He might get to show it off. Yeah, we always try to, you know, impress our first girlfriend, but we usually know a little better when it gets to our second. <laughs> it's just it's just practice. That's that's you know, John and Danny are just practicing for each other the whole story before they, they finally meet. So going into theory and discussion, you were talking so well about the gift as a setting, and and George spends a lot of time on it. He lingers here for an area that doesn't seem super important in and of itself at least to the story right now so that that kind of thing makes me think that george is, is building to something so what do you think is going to happen with with the gift on endgame what is what is george's goal for this place well i think first off necessarily the others have to go through the gift um just to get on their way to winterfell or if they're mm -hmm. going to get much further south than that um i don't know if that means anything whether they'll be engaged in the gift in battle or they'll wait for them to get to winterfell or whatnot um i am kind of curious what's going to happen when say sansa takes over uh, operations after the defeat of the others and what they will do with that land because i feel like a lot of the Stark story is how they carry on Ned's legacy, and John is very explicit that Ned's legacy involved looking at land reform, looking at the gift, and what else can be done with it. And I can very much see Sansa taking up that cause afterwards. 
Totally agreed. And John has that thought when he when Stannis proposes settling the wildlings on the gift. John thinks that, like, yeah, definitely Ned wanted to do that. I can't pretend he was ever on board with the idea of wildlings being the ones we settle there. And there's that great line where he thinks, but when he weighed Egret's hair against the cold eyes of, of the others, the choice was easy. And I think that's where we're, where we're leading as well. And I, I wonder if the vessel for that specifically... You mentioned Alice Karstark earlier when we were talking about potential brides for Rob. One of my favorite parts in dance is where Alice Karstark marries uh, Sigorn of Then, the next the next Magnar of Then after Stir, and uh, eventually they they go off to Carhold to take back uh, that castle from Alice's older relatives. We don't know how that's turned out yet, but it would be I think it would be great if that that marriage that alliance was kind of the vessel for settling people on the gift. That's how. That's kind of how we kind of work out the tensions between Northmen and Wildlings is through that alliance, and maybe that's that's where we head upon Endgame. I think that would be great. Especially, yeah, I think Sansa could definitely shepherd that along. It makes sense. So that is going to wrap us up for episode on both A Storm of Swords, Brand 3, and John 5. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to us. If you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and a bunch more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com, and you can find me at porkwenton on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can also find Nauticast ASOIAF now on Instagram. So next time in Westeros, Danny takes down Yunkai, the middle child of the cities of Slaver's Bay, in a storm of swords, Daenerys 4. What a chapter. Yeah, man, it's it, it might honestly end up being longer than this, and we covered two chapters today. Two chapters in this, and that's only one. But yeah, because we're introduced to Grey Worm for the first time, we got to hear all about Yunkai, we meet Dario, we meet the second sons. And uh, Danny even has a whole bit about Rhaegar, so it's it's a huge chapter. It's wild to consider that that George dealt with Yunkai in only one chapter. That's going to be great. Uh, my most recent uh, Star Wars episode is also out for all our five dollar and above patrons. My latest one on Revenge of the Sith and our next Lord of the Rings episode will be out uh, next week, covering Book Six, Chapter Two, The Land of Shadow. And then yes, we'll be back in Westeros with Daenerys. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Daenerys Four.